And now, Jesus, we pray that you, who are the way, the truth, and the life, would come and be the way and truth and life into our soul today. As you come and speak to us, you who are the eternal living word, come and speak to us now. Your particular specific word for this hour, for this day, for this people. Come, Lord. We open our hearts to receive you and welcome you to speak now. Come, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And good morning. I'd like to add my welcome to the welcomes you've already received. My name is Pastor Jim Olson, and I have the privilege of serving here as the lead pastor for Bethel Christian Fellowship St. Paul and our senior pastor of our Bethel family of churches. This morning we are continuing a new study that we just began last week entitled A New Way, The Letter to the Ephesians. And I'm so excited to be able to share this uh, series of messages with you. Ephesians is one of, the <clears throat> one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. It's got a richness and a depth to it that is uh, incomparable. And uh, so over these weeks, we're going to be unpacking the depths of those riches and uh, invite you to come along with us on this journey. If you have your Bible with you, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible with you or a device with the Bible on it, you can make use of the Bible located right in front of you. And turn to page 827. And this morning, we are continuing our study, uh, beginning in verse 15 and running to verse 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul begins with a greeting as he does in all of his letters. And uh, at the beginning of the letter to Ephesians, we notice that it's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, but probably uh, from both internal and external uh, uh, kinds of, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, <coughs> from both internal and external evidence, we notice that this, uh, this particular letter was probably not just written to the church at Ephesus, but was written to the congregations uh, surrounding in that area of Asia Minor. So it would have gone to a number of churches and circulated to a number of different congregations and a number of different folks. And um, Ephesians, or Ephesus, I should say, was the capital city of that uh, part of Asia. And so it was a very uh, dynamic, uh, diverse uh, city uh, that was known primarily for the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, you have some historical evidence around that. And Paul and his encounter with the craftsmen uh, when the gospel confronted uh, not just the power of the spiritual power of Diana, but also the uh, economic power uh, that was there. There was a riot ensued and all of the kinds of uh, interesting things that you can discover there by reading Acts chapter 19. In this uh, letter, Paul's primary concern is to expand the vision of the people who would be reading so that they would see more fully and more largely and expansively the truth about the kingdom of God, 
the truth about the, the new reality of the church that he has created, the new reality of who we are as his children, uh, and the, the way in which then we are going to walk that out and live that out. And so Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 kind of give us an overview of the gospel and of the way, and then chapters 4 to 6 are very uh, practical instruction of how we live out the gospel in our daily lives, in our relationships, in our workplaces, in all kinds of different situations. And so we're covering Ephesians 1 through 3 between now and the celebration service on June 8th. We're so excited to be coming together again on June 8th with Heart of the City. Dr. Steve Rasmussen, our very own Steve, will be here Pentecost Sunday. We're going to conclude that day with uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and, and, and Paul's great prayer there at the end of Ephesians 3. But before we get there, we've got another great prayer to look at this morning. So um, if you remember from last week, when Paul writes in verses 3 to 14, he writes in one extended sentence. It's like Paul begins to unpack the wonders of what God has done, and he can't put his pen down. And so that whole section from verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence extolling the wonders of God's goodness. And then it's sort of like he picks up his pen, takes a pause, and then begins writing again. And verses 15 to 23 are another one long sentence. And this is a prayer that Paul speaks and prays over the church at Ephesus and the others who would be reading this letter, including you and I here this morning. So he begins in Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 16, saying, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. For this reason. For this reason is, when you see for this reason, it's like looking at uh, uh, another word that you sometimes come across when it says consequently. Or another word that we sometimes find which when we say therefore. And whenever there's a therefore, we ask what is the therefore, therefore. So when we see for this reason, it calls us back to the previous sentence that Paul has written. So let's just remind ourselves very quickly what it is that Paul unpacked for us back in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. The first thing that he uh, reminds us of is that the Father chose us. There's a, a past tense sense in which the Father has chosen us. He has chosen us to be his children. We are God's children. And so this reality... This, this fact is something that is then, it is a reality upon which our faith stands. On the fact that he chose us. Oftentimes we think that it is us that is choosing him when in reality he is the one who has chosen us and we respond to his Secondly, the Son redeems us. In the here and now, the Son has redeemed us. And the reality is that we are forgiven, reconciled, and being conformed to Jesus' image. 
In this great uh, unpacked uh, sentence that Paul writes about, he talks about predestination, and we looked at that last week and understood that what we are predestined for, the, the trajectory of your and my life, is that God is in the process, even now, of bringing us deeper and fuller into confirmation, conforming with the very image of his son, Jesus. And then we have the reality that the Spirit seals us forever. The Spirit seals us forever. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is an amazing reality that you and I get to live in. We have a hope towards the future, understanding that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So this is the past, the present, and the future reality out of which Paul says, for this reason. Because of these realities, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Because a blessed life is lived for the praise of His glory. I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers. I want to give you a little sermon McNugget. This isn't the primary focus of the message this morning, but I want you to notice something very important here that would be so easy for us to overlook, but I don't want you to overlook this today. When Paul prays, He prays consistently and positively for the church. In fact, when you look through all of the apostolic prayers in the New Testament, you will notice one thing that is very true in all and every single one of them. One thing that is consistent in every one of them. In all of the apostolic prayers in the Bible, they are always prayed to God for the good of the church. And I think that that's a a wonderful pattern for us to emulate. A simple question for us to ask would be, how do we pray for the church? Now, depending on your temperament, perhaps, depending on your training, depending on just your uh, nature, or, or just just depending on maybe what you've uh, become accustomed to, sometimes when we look at the church, it's easy because the church is a human institution, it's easy to begin to look around at the church, the church even more broadly, I'm not just talking about Bethel Christian Fellowship, but I'm talking about the church, and it's easy to begin to look around at the church and see all of the gaps, to see all of the shortcomings, to see all of the weakness, to see all of the blemishes and the brokenness and the difficulties in the church. Is that not true? I mean, come on, let's be real. And so sometimes we begin to find ourselves perhaps even unconsciously beginning to sort of pray against things and we're praying, you know, whatever, we're, we're kind of 
immersed in the issues and the problems and the difficulties of the church. And I'm not saying that we overlook those. I'm not saying that we close our eyes and, you know, akuna matata and we just, you know, we, we just put on a happy face and everything's okay. No, there is a reality that we need to walk in. And I believe that we need to follow the Apostle Paul and the other apostles in their pattern of prayer, which is to begin to pray positively for the church with a consistent, thankful heart for all that God has and is and will do through His church. Because guess what? Here's the reality. When somebody begins to diss the church to me, often in my heart, what rises up is, do you realize that you are dissing Jesus' bride? And I don't know about you husbands, but you you can say whatever you want to me. You start talking about my wife, and we got a problem. All right? Is this not true? Come on, guys. Well, that's the way Jesus feels about his church. He loves his church. Oh, yes, the church has all kinds of issues and problems and challenges and struggles and difficulties, and all of that is true. And he loves her with a relentless love, a jealous love. And so as you begin to pray, as you even begin to pray for Bethel Christian Fellowship and the church at large, would you begin to pray both consistently and positively for the church? Does that make sense? Now that was a Sermon McNugget, okay? So chew on it. It's probably healthier than a Sermon, uh, than a whatever McNugget from McDonald's. All right. Never had one, but I'm sure they're... All right. There we go. Now he goes on in verse 17. He says, I keep asking. Now there's that consistency again. So, you know, again, we live in a microwave culture, right? Who's that? There was a comedian years ago that says, I came to America and it's amazing. I see, you know, know, I see instant milk and I, you know, see all of these things that are, you know, that are, that are instant. And what did he see? Okay, now I've lost it. Baby powder. And he thought, my goodness, you add water and you have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> but we live in that microwavable instant culture. But, but, but there's a, there's, here, here's one of the things that I have discovered. I, I used to say this when I was working on my doctorate. And I, I completed my doctorate, I, I, I said this, and this, I still believe this is true. The race for the doctorate is not to the swift or the strong or to the smart. It's to the stubborn. Honestly. There was, a whole, there was people a whole lot smarter than me, a whole lot swifter, a whole lot, a whole lot, a lot of things than me. But one thing was, there's few people more stubborn than I am. Right, mom and dad? Okay, so, all right. I'm going to do it. I get my teeth in it, I'm going to finish it. Well, that's the way we need to be even around our Christian faith. To keep asking. Keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom 
and revelation so that you might know Him better. So, there is a wisdom and revelation that comes as we experience the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In John 14, 26, it says, The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. People often say, well, if only I'd lived in Jesus' time, you know, then I'd be able to, you know, then I'd be able to follow him and it would be so much easier. And have you read the Bible? Have you seen the disciples who were with him? They struggled in ways that we struggle. But we have something that they eventually had, but even when Jesus was here on earth, they did not yet fully have. But they had, after he was resurrected and sent the Spirit, we have the Spirit of God living in us. You have the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. But I don't know what to do, Pastor. Have you asked the Spirit of wisdom and revelation to give you insight into your situation? The Bible says in James, you have not, well, it says, you know, if you want it, you have not because you ask not. And if you want to have wisdom, ask for it. And when you ask for it, you're asking for a good thing. So ask for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to come in to give you insight and understanding into whatever situation you find yourself in. Does that sound all right? And what is the revelation? What is the wisdom and revelation? What is the Spirit of God giving wisdom and revelation about? Somebody read the end of the sentence. So that? What? All together. So that you may know him better. So that you may know him better. That's what the wisdom and revelation, that's what the Spirit of God is about he is constantly pointing a spotlight onto Jesus and the knowledge of the Father. Now this is eternal life. Jesus says this. So we think of eternal life as something that happens after you die. I want to recorrect that misunderstanding in you. Eternal life begins when you come into relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. You have immediately crossed from death to eternal life. And this is what eternal life is about. It is about that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That is what true life, true eternal life is about. It's about knowing him. Paul says in Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes! To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's what the young men who were baptized today, uh, Daniel Cook and Joseph Watson, that's what they were stepping into, the reality of this resurrection power of Christ, to know him better. That's why we step into baptism, is to know him better, to be obedient, to walk in fullness of life with him. That's what the spirit of wisdom and revelation is about. 
so that we know him better. How well do you know him? You see, before you came to Christ, before you, you came into relationship with God, you read the Bible and it was like impenetrable. You couldn't understand. It was like, try, it was like trying to decipher Greek and Hebrew, literally. I mean, a lot of times you would read it and you'd go, I don't get it. But then the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of you when you give your heart to Christ, and suddenly the words in the page begin to come alive. And you begin to have insight and understanding and see things that you never saw before. You don't understand everything yet, but when you don't understand something, what do you do? You ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation because he wants you to know better. Remember that? When you were a kid? You ever hear those words from your parents? You know better. Right? I'm sure I heard those words. You know better. Well, today, we get to know better. All right? So I want us to know better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order. Say it with me that you may know. That you may know. Say it with me one more time. That you may know. What does he want you to know? What does Paul want the church at Ephesus and the surrounding, and what does he want us to know? What does the Lord want us to know today? He wants us to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. All right, let's very quickly unpack that. But this is so wonderful. I mean, this is the riches again of the gospel being expressed to us. First, the hope of his calling. Here, again, we're going to have a past, present, actually past, future, and present reality. All right? First, the hope of his calling. Because God wanted to make, Hebrews 6, 17 to 20, listen to this. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. I love this. I love this picture. There's an old fable about a kite that longed to be free from what it experienced or thought was the impediment of the anchor holding it to earth. And so he begged and begged and begged to be free. He was flying up in the air beautifully, but he begged to be free from that anchor. And so the string was cut. But instead of flying and soaring beyond... And up, 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 what happened to that kite? You know the reality. Back to earth. Well, the same is true with us. There is this beautiful balance of our, and this is the, the hope of his calling. There's actually a future past tense to this because it's the, 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 the soaring of our soul towards heaven, but it is anchored. The security comes from this hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And it is a hope that is anchored beyond the veil. 
And the veil speaks of, look up here. We have a beautiful illustration of, of it up here right in our sanctuary. If you remember, this was a Jewish synagogue, and here's where the, the tabernacle was with the ten words. And when that was, ta- when that was taken out and the cross would place it, the, the curtains were placed there as a reminder to us. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it tells us that the curtain which divided the holy place from the holy of holies, where the presence of God resided in the ark, when that was Um, When Jesus died, that curtain was opened, and now there is access. And that is the reality of the hope that we have. We have the hope because it's set behind the curtain. In the very heart and presence of God. This is not a nice wish. This is not even a beautiful desire. Hope has an anchor in the reality of the truth of what God has said about who he is, his very character. He cannot lie. And so our hope is anchored and secure and rests in the reality of the promised truth of God that you have a hope and a future and a calling in him, in Christ. That's the rock upon which our hope stands. Oh, our emotions They go up and down. Daily life gets really daily sometimes, doesn't it? And it can be difficult and challenging and all of those things. But our hope is not in those things. Our hope is not in whether our day goes well or not or whether we're feeling well about how our day is going or not. Our hope is anchored. It is secure in Christ. That should give us something to shout about. (laughs) Ha ha. Hallelujah! 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 Thank you, Lord. All right. Our hope holds on with confident expectation in God. Get those two words, confident expectation. That's what hope is. Hope is a confident expectation in God. Secondly, we have the wealth of his glorious inheritance. Here's the future. Here's what we're looking towards. Paul says, I want you to know more about the hope of this calling. I want you to know more about the wealth of his glorious inheritance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Here it is again, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And look at this, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the inheritance we have. It's not in our stuff. It's not in the things that we have that provide us with a temporary comfort. No, the wealth of his glorious inheritance is incomparable and inexhaustible in God. It will never perish, spoil, or fade. But how much greater, how much more full, how much more beautiful is the inheritance that we have in heaven? I mean, you don't ever see, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I have never, I've pastored for almost 30 years. I've done a lot of funerals, and I have never yet had a hearse with a U-Haul. When you're done, you're done. You're going to let it go. 
So where are, we, where are you investing now? The story is told of the, of the wealthy man who right before the um, stock market crash, this was you know, back in the 20s, who, who put money into building a new church. And he invested all kinds, you know, and then, I mean, he had lots of wealth, so it was not actually an issue for him to give that. He just gave the gift to build that new church. And then the stock market crashed, and he lost everything. And people said, don't you wish you could have that money back? And he said, well, why? That's the investment that's actually going to last. That was the investment that didn't get taken away. Your investment in relationship, your investment in people, your investment in lives, your investment in the work of the kingdom, that's what will never be taken away. It's incomparable and an inexhaustible inheritance. And he wants you to know that. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and, and worm and, and rust can't destroy. extraordinary greatness of his power. This is the present reality. The present reality. So we live, we live in the already and not yet. That's what theologians call it. What does that mean? It means the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is coming. I am saved and I am being saved. Okay? We live between where we are and where we're going to be, and it's this in-between part that gets messy, right? <laughs> it's one thing to know the hope to which you've been called, and it's another thing to know that glorious inheritance that's coming, but in between, it can be challenging, yes? <laughs> right? I heard a good amen from Jeanette, okay? Growing old is not for sissies, right? <laughs> All right? Or as my mom always says, getting old is not hard, it's being old. <laughs> getting old, you just got to keep breathing every day, but it's the being old that gets difficult. So how do we live, what do we need to know more of in this in-between place? Well, we need to know more about the extraordinary greatness of his power. So, again, as Paul writes in Romans 6, what we just read this morning before our baptism we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away from with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Therefore now... Our new life is lived through the exceeding greatness of his power. You have a power that you have no idea about many times. I think we, we live in this place of almost um, willful ignorance about the power that resides within us. If we only could see or understand or grasp, and this is what Paul is praying for, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may know more about the exceeding greatness of his power that resides within us in the here and now. You are not a victim. You are a victor. You are not the tail. You are the head. 
You may be weak, but you are not powerless because you have the power of Christ in you. You have the power of Christ in you. That power, he goes on and says right here in the scripture that we're unpacking this morning in Ephesians 1, 19b to 21, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And right here, you know, theologians will remind us, and and, and Greek scholars, which I'm not, can remind you that this exceeding greatness of his strength includes his dunamis, his power, He uses four different words, energia, the working, the kratos, the strength, and the iskus, the mighty, which is flowing to us and through us. It's like he he builds upon it and adds up word upon word to say there's, there's this dynamic power, there's this energy that is working in you that is strong and mighty, and it is work within us. Anybody give a witness to that? This is what is flowing in us and through us. And he wants us to know more of that exceeding power. That working. That strength. That might that is at work in us. And it's working through us. Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, and God placed all things. Anybody say with me, all things? All things. Under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Here's what I want you to hear. He placed all things under his feet. He is the head over all things. Therefore, God exalted him, Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says. God exalted him to the highest place. The highest place is the highest place. (laughs) The highest place. There is no place higher than him. And gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He brought him to the highest place. He exalted him. He lifted him up to the highest place. He is the head over all things. And he fills us, his body, with everything. As it says in Colossians, which we studied earlier this year, at the beginning of the year, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Oh, it is such a temptation to always view the glass as half empty. But here the reality is he is the head over every power and authority and we have been brought to fullness in Christ. He fills everything. He fills us. He desires to fill his people, more and more and more. This is why John says, I must decrease, he must increase. This is why the widow came with all of her empty jars to be filled 
by, as the prophet had said, with the oil that would keep running as long as she brought her emptiness. So we continue to bring our emptiness to him, that he might fill us to the fullness of who he is, the exalted king who is head over everything, desires to fill his church, his people with the fullness of who he is. And I don't know about you, but I want that. Jesus, I want to be filled with more and more and more of you. The worship team would come on up. We're going to respond this morning with a wonderful contemporary hymn called Knowing You. You know it, you've sung it, many of you. But it's really a prayer today, and I want it to be our prayer this morning. As we come to this closure point in the message, I want to ask you this question. Do you yet fully comprehend? Do you truly know the reality of the things that we just unpacked? Do you know the hope of your calling in him? Do you know the wealth of your glorious inheritance? Are you living in the reality of the extraordinary greatness of his power? If, like I believe every one of us in this room would honestly say, I'm not living to the fullness of that yet, but it is your desire to know more, to live more fully in that, Let's stand to our feet and sing this as our prayer this morning. And then I will be giving a benediction. But I would like us to pray and ask this of the Lord today. And today, if you have never entered into relationship with Jesus, today you can take that step. And even as we sing this song, you can make your way down to the front here. And Tom and Kathy would love to pray with you today. They're right here in front. To, inv- to, to welcome you into a relationship with the living God. To know the things that we've been talking about. And maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that you've been in a place maybe of, of just focusing on the lack and not on the fullness that is yours in Christ. And, and maybe you need to know more And you just want to come to this altar and express that to the Lord. I'm going to open up this altar and invite you to come. So I invite you here as we sing, knowing you. Here we go. So you are welcome here at this altar today. To come into relationship with him and to know him better. I am convinced that most of the issue, I, 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 you know, I've been in ministry 30 years. I've walked with the Lord for almost 50 years. I don't need to know necessarily brand new truths. I need the truths that I know. I need to know them better. So if you're like me, sing it with me now. As we uh, prepare to go out, I want to leave you with a picture this morning. After World War II and all of the horrific bombings that took place in many of the cities of Europe, 
There was a cathedral in London that was known for this incredible statue of Jesus. And in this particular statue of Jesus, he stood with his arms opened wide. During the war and the bombs, the statue was damaged. And the most critically damaged part of the statue were the arms, which had been literally shorn off and into a, just a, a rubble of pieces. And they were able to put back together the rest of the statue. But when it came to the arms, they didn't know what to do. They thought of trying to reshape and rebuild them, but finally they decided that no, they would leave the arms off the statue. And to this day, there's a plaque that says, Jesus, he has no arms but yours. As we go today, knowing the power of his death and resurrection and his life, it's not, again, just flowing into us, it's flowing through us. And so as you go out today, you'll always see the, you've, many years you've seen the banner up here, sent to make disciples of all nations. We're called to be a house of prayer for all nations and we're sent to those who are not yet here. So I encourage you to go with this reality of what we've just prayed today and what we've just heard in your life and be the arms of Jesus to somebody who needs to feel his arms today and this week. If you just open your hands, receive the benediction now. And I pray now that, Lord, as you have spoken to us, that the truth of what you have delivered unto us would be worked deeply into the very fabric of our lives today. That we might know better the extraordinary reality of which we have just heard. And I pray now that as we go, that you may be filled afresh this day with the immeasurable love of God the Father, with the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ the Son, with the inexhaustible strength and power, comfort and hope of the Holy Spirit, be with you and yours as you go from this house to yours, sent to make disciples of all nations. Go with the banner of his favor over your lives. And until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home, I pray that his love and goodness and mercy will chase you down every day of your life. In the name of Jesus, I bless you. Amen.